got a Bible with you, open it up to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the Bible in the pew in front of you is uh, yours to use. If you don't own a Bible, it's yours to keep if you'd like it. Um, We're going to be on page 1044 in the pew Bibles this morning. And as always, as we work through this text this morning, if there's anything that stands out to you, if there's any questions you have, you can text those anonymously to our text line, and uh, we'll take a look at those uh, towards the end this morning and, and, and wrestle with those together. So I'm going to pray one more time, and we will dive into it. Lord God, thank you for your people, for your people in this place, and the um, just the freedom we have to, to gather in this, this historic room uh, that your people uh, 120 years ago built in order to create a space to worship you. And, and I'm just so grateful that it's still used in that capacity. Um, God, I just pray that your spirit, um, God, that you would make yourself known to us this morning. You are here. You promised that you would be, and we are often dull of hearing and dull of seeing. And I just pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds as we open your word, teach us, uh, lead us, guide us, shape us into the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, one of my buddies at community group is named Uriah. Uriah, you, you may have seen him. He's got this amazing black curly hair. He's about that tall. And uh, he's super fun. Last week at community group, Uriah was, I was talking to Uriah's dad, and Uriah was on the ground on his hands and knees, and, and he was kind of like romping around the floor. And, and it was kind of like he'd put his his front feet down, and then he'd like kick off with his back feet, and his butt would go up in the air, and he'd land, and then he'd kick off again, and then he'd land. And I said, hey, man, are you a frog? And he goes, no, I'm a horse. And I said, oh, sorry. And then I, I thought, I was thinking, like, does he not know how a horse walks? Or do I not know how a horse walks? There's something either about his internal perception of who he's modeling and, and the distance between that and my understanding of it, my communica- uh, the communication of it. And it just got me thinking, like, Paul's been going through the book of Colossians here, and he's been, like, hammering home week after week after week. I've been studying it, that you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And, and we've talked about how from the... F- outflow of that were to be living our lives. But it kind of makes me wonder, like, what does it actually look like to live a a life that looks like Jesus? What does it actually look like to live the life of a Christian? When I go out into the world and I act like Jesus, one, do do I even know what Jesus is like? And two, do the people that see me, do they recognize Christ in me? If, like Paul says, everything that God is, is in Christ, we talked about that, and if I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me, how do I actually live that out? 
And so Paul is really turning the corner in Colossians chapter three here. He's been just exalting in how amazing Jesus is for two chapters. And he's gonna start kind of laying out the implications for that in the life of Jesus' people. So this morning, we're gonna get some principles for how to look like Christ in our lives. And over the next few weeks, Paul's gonna work out some of the specific details for us, at least as how he saw them in the church at Colossae. And so as we get into this section of Scripture where we're going to be told what to do, there's some important things that we need to remember. I want to get, uh, share with you this Henry Nouwen quote that I, I've shared many times. But Nouwen says, From the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. And this is really important. Now, and says, like, once we recognize that we are loved by God, our status as people is adopted, conformed to the image of his son, grafted in, members of the body. There's so many metaphors in scripture of who you are. Then the process of the rest of your life is just walking out that reality. And so the framework we have to hold is that Christian, we are God's people, and we don't earn that, right? We don't buy that. We don't put God into our debt through our lifestyle. We are forgiven of sin. We're rescued from death, and we're made new creations in Christ by grace as a free gift. And so when we start talking about doing things, all of our doing needs to come out of our being. It is impossible for you and I to become a child of God by doing anything. But it is necessary and life-giving for us, if we're Christians this morning, that as one who has become a child of God, that we would respond with doing. So Paul has spent two chapters trying to convince us that Jesus is bigger and stronger and better and more important than anything else that we could be connected to in this world anything else that we could be aligned with. And so now he tells us how that should affect our lives. And this morning, I want to share four facets of the Christian life that uh, are seen in this passage. And they're these. The Christian life is first upside down. The Christian life is secondly active. The Christian life is thoughtful. And the Christian life is expectant. So first off, the Christian life is upside down. Let's read our text again. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So last week, we talked about some of the things that the false teachers at Colossae were doing. And, and they, were, um, they were really focused on uh, self-discipline. We said that self-discipline in and of itself isn't bad. But the reason they were fasting and, and um, being disciplined with their bodies was that so that they could leave the earthly plane and ascend into the heavens where they would have these mystical visions of angels. And they would commune with the heavenly powers. And Paul says that they're wrong, that they're foolish, that they're actually actually focused on earthly things. 
He said they were being led astray by the elements of the world, the stoicheia, the dark spiritual powers that have uh, overtaken the world. But now Paul says that we should be looking at things that are above and not on earthly things. So, so how is what Paul is saying different? What I think Paul is doing here is he is fundamentally reversing the way a person will grow in spiritual health. The false teachers are using earthly techniques and earthbound spiritual powers to escape their lives and ascend into heaven where they will gain special knowledge from their visionary experiences. Their spiritual journey, it starts on earth and ascends through mysticism into heaven. And Paul says something different. He says the Christian life actually begins in heaven and then moves down to the earth. The culmination of your spirituality is not some transcendent vision of the heavens, but the day that Christ comes down from heaven to earth, where you will be glorified just as he is. Paul says something similar in Philippians 3. He says, For I have told you often and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. See, we're not seeking to be removed from the earth and flee to the heavens. Paul says we're seeking to be conduits of the kingdom of heaven coming down to earth. And this is speaking of uh, historic prayers of the church. This is one that Jesus taught us. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And see, we don't, we don't bring the kingdom. God brings the kingdom, but we pray for it and we live into the reality that is both here now and coming in the future. Paul says it this way in this passage in Ephesians. It's fairly lengthy. He says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, the, the dark, real spiritual powers, right? We all too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking about right now. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. See the, the order of operations there in Ephesians. We have been saved from the dark spiritual powers, and we've been placed in the heavens with Christ. And from that position, from that status, out from our lives flow good works. So what are these good works? Well, next week, Paul is going to start giving us a whole list of earthly things to reject and heavenly things to participate in. We're not going to get super specific this week. 
we talk about the greater principle. But the idea to grab on here is, is what Douglas Moo says. He says that the false teachers take the earthly situation as their starting point, from which by their own efforts and techniques, they will move beyond the body, gain visionary experiences, and ascend into heavenly spheres. Paul moves in the reverse direction, seeking, seeing the starting point and the source of the believer's life in the resurrected Christ in heaven from where it works itself out on earthly life. So this is really important. This matters a lot to our everyday life. The direction that your spiritual life is flowing from is incredibly important. It's going to affect everything about you. And I want to give you a couple examples of, of things that are out of alignment in this way. Um, back in the uh, Middle Ages, the church participated in something called uh, indulgences. And what indulgences were is if you were... Um, a pretty bad sinner, or if you weren't a particularly holy person and you just didn't really want to follow Jesus the way the church said you should follow Jesus, the church sold these certificates. And you could, you could pay the church to get a certificate that basically says, God forgives you for your sins, you can go to heaven. Just so we're clear, that's not biblical. <laughs> But, think, but, but, but listen to the logic. Like, we're down here, and we want to get into the heavens. And there's a path. I mean, I could become a monk. That sounds hard. Um, I could just become a, like, kind and loving person. That doesn't sound very profitable. I would rather lie and cheat and steal and do what I want, but I, I still do want to go to heaven. So I'm going to barter with the church, with this earthly financial arrangement that they made up in order to get to heaven. Here's another example from uh, the last couple of weeks. Many of you probably know who Tim Keller is. He's a Bible teacher, a pastor, and probably at a church a number of years ago in Manhattan. And there's been this like flurry of online articles about him lately because he's being critiqued because his whole mode of being in the world is that he believes because of who Jesus is, Christian people should be winsome and kind and gospel-centered and mission-driven in the way they interact with the outside world. And there's a whole group of Christians today that are coming against him and saying, no, no, that was how we got the job done in a previous age, but now, now things are bad. And so we have to abandon that philosophy. And we have to get aggressive because our enemies are aggressive. And, and if our enemies are aggressive, we need to fight fire with fire. And the reality is, is, is we're saying we need to use earthly means to obtain heavenly goods. If lying or name-calling, or manipulating a narrative, or actively hating our opponents works to forward the cause, then that's what we're going to have to do to get it done. David Wells says, worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And it's easy to think about the world outside and how worldly they are and how, how good is evil and black is white and there's all this confusion and craziness going on. And I don't think we can deny that, but, 
when the church decides we have to give up the ethics of the kingdom of God in order to get the kingdom of God to move forward, we have lost our minds. Because the reality is the Christian life is upside down. It doesn't make sense to the way the world works. If we are people that are taking Paul seriously, our lives are going to flow out of Jesus, seated in the heavenlies, into the everyday world, and his presence in us is going to lead us to different beliefs, different actions, and different choices that look upside down to the world around us. So secondly, the Christian life is active. Verse 1 of Colossians 3, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul says we are called to seek. That's That's an action word. We are called to be getting after something. The seek is a common word used in the scriptures, but here's an example of one from Matthew chapter two. Um, The wise men come to Jesus and his family and they give him gifts and then they leave. And after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child and to kill him. That word search is the same word as our word seek. Herod isn't just like, oh yeah, there's another king that might be taking over my throne, no big deal. No, he's getting after it. He does not want Jesus around because he is a threat and he's gonna go to Bethlehem and he is gonna murder a whole group of children in order to stop Jesus. Now, Jesus and his family flee to Egypt, but the action that Herod takes is active and it's purposeful. And this is what Paul says here. He says, we are to seek the things that are above. But Paul's just riffing on Jesus, right? Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. There is an activity about our lives as followers of Jesus that is motivated by the reality that we are in Christ. And this is really important because I think sometimes we psych ourselves out of a Christ-like life. You know, I just, I just don't know enough. Or, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I know I'm saved by grace, but I'm not really that good. I'm not good enough. Or, or I'm stuck in this sin. Just, just even last night, I was doing this thing that I'm just so ashamed for. and I couldn't possibly walk in Christ-likeness because I'm so broken. But how many of us are quick to seek after financial goals or material goals or relational comforts, even if they're hard, even if they're far away, but we just can't seem to drum up the energy to seek after the things that are connected to our lives in Christ? Maybe it's a consistent study of God's Word or or a rhythm of prayer or, or forming deep relationships with other believers or making difficult ethical choices at work or school. So where do we get that energy? If we're called to to get after it, to seek after the things that are above, where does that energy come from? How are we to be motivated to get into things that we know we should be doing? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God, is what Paul says. 
Paul wants us to think, because we're all good Hebrew Bible scholars, he wants us to think about Psalm 110, where it says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is a song about the great king who rules the nations. And Paul says, we can seek the things that are above. We can seek the things connected to our lives in Christ because Jesus is ruling the world. Christian, you are under the authority of the king of the universe. You can live out of that status because he is the king and you are his subject. You are under his authority. I've told this story before, but I think it's helpful. Uh, Back when I used to work for the Croc Center here in Coeur d'Alene, I was kind of in middle management. And I was going to work one day and I was walking down the hall. And off in the corner, there was a couple of women that were... um, one woman was giving the other woman a tarot card reading. She was, you know, flipping over these these cards and, I don't know, telling her future or something. So this practice is is just demonic, right? It's, it's, it's It's called divination. It's a way to get into the spiritual world outside of Christ, and it's dangerous, and, and, and it didn't have any place in our facility. So I walked by, and I was just kind of like, wow, that's crazy, and I kept walking. That's, that's my jam. <laughs> and uh, I went into my boss's office. And he's the, he was the head of the Croc Center, uh, the, the major of the army there. And I said, would you believe it? There's these people in the, in the hallway, and they're doing a tarot card reading. And he goes, what? Go tell them to knock it off. And so I left his office, and I went back into the hallway, and I said, hey, excuse me, ladies, I'm really sorry. We just, that's just not appropriate here, and if you're going to do that, you're going to have to leave. And they were mad, and they huffed and puffed, but they left. But the crazy thing was I didn't need the information from my boss. I knew what was going on was wrong, and I should have said something about it. But the fact that he gave me the order imbibed me with this authority that now on the order of the major of the Salvation Army, I'm going to march out there and tell them the truth. And so church, like we, we're under the authority of the king of the universe and he's given us marching orders and he's given us supernatural power And it's not just that we need to know the right answers, it's that he said, hey, go out and be light in the world. Go out and love your neighbors as yourself. Go out and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, be about this business. And the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is motivation for us to live a life that looks like our King because he is in charge of all of it. And he goes with us. Living this upside down life actively under the authority of the king, though, sometimes it just, it just doesn't feel good. It just, there's something goes on in your mind, in your heart. It's like, I don't know. That's, that's why I think Paul calls us to live thoughtfully. The Christian life is thoughtful. In verse 2, we read, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So the question is, what's going to shape your life? It's going to be the things that you think about. It's going to be the things that you focus your mind on. What are the things that you let ruminate in your soul? If you're not familiar, ruminate is a um, cow term, for those of you that aren't cow people. But cows have very uh, 
rough diets. They eat grass and they, they pluck the grass and they chew it and they swallow it into their stomach and the stomach acid dissolves it a little bit, but then they throw it up again and chew it some more. And then they have a second stomach for some reason that they swallow it into. Then it gets dissolved a little bit more. And I think it's, there's four stomachs, but that's what ruminate means is to just like chew on this grass and get it all nice and digested. What are the things that you ruminate on? Here's Tim Keller again. The things you daydream about in your spare time are often the things that have captured your imagination and so are the things that you serve. The earthly things should remind us of the stoicheia, the elements of the world from last week. If you were here, you remember that, that this, this word is, is used to identify a class of evil spiritual powers that are trying to run amok in the world. If we are not diligent, we can be people who focus our minds on the ideas and the agenda of these evil spiritual powers that are trying to destroy us. I call this the shower test. I, we were talking this morning about showering, and uh, I, I, we, we all agreed that like taking a long, hot shower is great. Um, the thing about the shower is other than I've just, I have very few things to do in the shower. I'm not going to get into the details, but it's, my, my to-do list is small. So most of my time in the shower is just being alone with myself, being alone with my heart and my mind. What are the things that come to mind when I'm in that place, when I don't have a phone or a family or a job or a book or a billboard or outside in beautiful Coeur d'Alene or anything but just the walls of the shower and the noise of the water, what do, I, what do I think about? What do you think about when you have a moment of quiet where there's nothing left to distract you? What are the things that occupy your mind and your heart and your imagination? We should be setting our mind on the things that come from Christ. But notice how Paul says this after he says we should be seeking Christ. And I think we get this backwards sometimes. When, when I get sufficiently psyched up and energized inside, then I will be ready to actually live like a Christian. Once I, once I memorize enough scripture or once I have enough um, boldness as an evangelist, then I'll step out, right? Maybe you're here and you're not, you don't see yourself as good enough. Maybe you have intellectual doubts questions about faith that you don't have answers for. Well, when I get all that sorted out, then I will follow Jesus. But Paul says the exact opposite. He says, start doing the things that flow from your status in Christ, and then you can set your mind on them. And this isn't necessarily how it always works, but it's similar to this other famous line that Paul says in Romans 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Notice that the first thing in that passage is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to give ourselves to God in service. And then what happens is our mind is renewed. In this exhortation in Romans and, and in Colossians, Moving our bodies into a position of being a living sacrifice precedes the renewing of our minds. So for those of you that, that have a, a, 
some things that are coming to mind that like, man, I should be doing this. I should be living this way. I should be talking to those people. I should be practicing the spiritual discipline. But you know what? Here's my list of reasons why I can't do that right now. What if you just started doing the things that Jesus is telling you to do and, that let, and you let your mind catch up in the process? What if you actually began living out of your position in Christ above and trusted that your mind would be brought into alignment with your actions over time. I think this happens in all kinds of situations. Um, I, I've, I used to get really upset that my family never did the dishes. Um, I had it drilled into me by my father that when you dirty a dish, you clean it right away and it doesn't get crusty, you know. And unfortunately for him, I never did that as a young man. I had to wait until I became a father myself to actually do that. But thank you, Dad, for uh, the advice. But I would come home and like the dishes would be everywhere and it would just drive me crazy and I'd get angry and my children, and you know, and it would totally ruin my evening. But then I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to start doing the dishes myself. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to scold. I'm not going to shame anyone. I'm just just going to do the thing. And after a while, I actually kind of started liking to do the dishes. It's actually kind of therapeutic and calming, and I kind of enjoy it now. That's true. (laughs) You should try it. But that's the thing, like when you, when you purpose in your mind that you're just going to follow Jesus, I'm just going to commit to prayer, I'm going to get up early and study, I'm going to step out there and share my faith with someone at work. I don't want to, I don't like it, this feels really awful, I'm really tired, this seems boring, whatever. Just do it. Get into a rhythm of doing it and you will find that your heart and your mind catches up with you and you will find joy and purpose and fulfillment in it. So, what's the point of this upside-down, active, thoughtful life that we're being called to? The fourth point today is that the Christian life is expectant. Verses 3 and 4, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Remember back to chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said, you died with Christ to the elements of the world. The evil powers that give rise to the systems of sin that we are all stuck in, you're dead to that. You don't have anything to do with that anymore. Why? Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are in a cultural moment right now where our world is being fueled by fear. No matter what your political or social worldview is, there are powerful voices speaking into your life that you and I are listening to that are trying to make us afraid. Afraid so we will buy their product or like their page or watch their TV program. Powerful people that are caught up in the system of the world know that we can be hooked to whatever it is they're selling if we are afraid. We're supposed to be people, when we watch the news, when we surf social media, when we see current events, we're supposed to be people that are wringing our hands about the end of the world. What's going to happen? It's so bad right now. But friends, there is no reason for us to be afraid. 
because we are hidden with Christ in God. A number of years ago, um, our family inherited a safe from my grandmother. And it's great until we have to move because it's like a thousand pounds. So I just asked Brian to move it for me and he just picks it up and it's, it's embarrassing. <laughs> but but it's, it's metal and it's dense. And inside the metal is like fireproof insulation. And it's got, you know, like this big door and these like latches and a, you know, a combination. It's super cool. There's no money in it, unfortunately. <laughs> but we do have some valuables in it. But the thing is, is it's designed so that if there should be a disaster, a flood or an earthquake or a fire, that safe is going to be okay. That safe is designed to not burn up and to not be smashed and to not float off and to not get waterlogged. And the things that you hide inside it are protected from anything that goes on outside. And Paul says that you and I are hidden with Christ in God. We are safe even if the whole world burns down. And so when you hear the voices that more than anything are telling you to be afraid, and I'm not saying that there aren't negative things happening in the world. There definitely are. But if your meditation on those things and the, and the ways you choose to engage with those things bring fear and anxiety and worry into your soul, you need to know that you don't have to be afraid because you are hidden with Christ and God. But lastly, look what else we should expect in this verse. We, Paul says that Jesus Christ is going to appear in glory. And this is, this is a foundational aspect of our belief as Christians. Jesus will return to set up his perfect kingdom. And more than that, Paul says, because we are hidden in him, his appearance in glory will be our appearance in glory as well. We see this all over scripture. Our destiny is to be changed into the likeness of Christ when he comes to set up his kingdom in full. John says it this way in his first letter, dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. History has a goal. It has a purpose and it's found in Christ. And this isn't the case with every worldview. If you are a materialist or if you hold to a spirituality that says that the universe is cyclical with uh, reincarnation and karma and those sort of things. History has no purpose. History just barrels on until the heat death of the universe destroys everything finally. But if you're a Christian, this idea is integral to the gospel, both personally as we meditate on what our individual futures look like and corporately as we think about the church and the world around us. Martin Luther King Jr. very famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. King is confident that justice will eventually be done because he believed in the resurrection and one day return of Christ. Even if his um, 
purposes for ethnic reconciliation did not fully come to fruition or never came to fully fruition in his lifetime or even in the next several hundred years, King knows that one day Jesus will return and make all the wrongs right. And this is really important for us. Any work that we do as Christians flowing out of who we are hidden in Christ is tied up to the idea that Jesus will eventually right all the wrongs and mend everything that is broken. Any kind of social justice work that you're involved in or societal change or good work in general. Christians have a, have a history of building universities and hospitals and, and adoption and refugee resettlement. All of these beautiful expressions of the gospel, they all flow from who Jesus is and the promise that our imperfect kingdom work will one day be completed in Christ's physical, visible return to rule and reign forever. Amen? So we are we are upside down people. We are active people. We are thoughtful people. And we are expectant people. But notice how Paul says in verse 1 he says, "So if you have been raised with Christ, it kind of introduces a little bit of a question." I mean, you could translate it since It's not a huge deal. Paul isn't questioning the Colossians' salvation, but if is a helpful way to kind of interrogate our own souls. Maybe you're here today, and I don't know all of you. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just exploring faith at this season in your life. Maybe you've grown up in the church, but you've never really committed to following Jesus. All of these upside-down, active, thoughtful, expectant, glory-filled encouragements, they don't belong to you. They're for Jesus' people. But the good news is that you, you have a choice this morning. You can continue to remain enslaved to the powers of the world, like Paul says that you are, and to your own internal sinful desires. Or you can renounce that and accept the invitation that Jesus is offering you to be made new, to be cleansed from sin and freed from death. And that's always the offer that Jesus holds out to us, right? Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will make you new adopt you into the kingdom of my Father. The glorious promises that are for all of us, that we hold on to as Christians, they can be yours today if you're not a follower of Jesus. Just by believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead to give you new life, to give your allegiance to Christ above any other That offer is always on the table. So as we wrap up, I think N.T. Wright summarizes this passage really well. He says, the Messiah died and was raised. You are in him. Therefore, you have died and been raised, and you must learn to live accordingly. The day is coming when the new creation at present hidden 
will be unveiled and the King, the Messiah, will be revealed in glory. And when that happens, the person you already are in Him will be revealed as well. Believe it and live accordingly. So that's the encouragement for all of us this morning. As we reflect on our status in Christ Jesus, to step into the life that we're being called to live day by day. So we'll do a little Q&R. I've got a question here. It says, what might it look like to live a life that smothers the feet of Jesus with kisses? I don't know, that's beautiful though. I think if you're, if you're unfamiliar, there's a, there's a scene in the Gospels where a woman who is um, living a life of sin and brokenness recognizes the grace and goodness of God through Jesus Christ. And she goes to him and in her unworthiness bows at his feet and where the, the lowest servant in the household would be responsible for cleaning the feet of the guests, she instead kisses Jesus' feet and cries and wipes his feet with her hair. I think the thing that strikes me about that story is everybody else in the house is kind of disgusted by that. They're all kind of embarrassed for Jesus. They're embarrassed for the woman. It's all kind of awkward. Um, but, but she doesn't seem to care. And Jesus praises her for it. And so with regard to this passage and, and just kind of that sentiment, I would say, like, are you, are you sensing in your brokenness just the profound love of God? And is there something stirring in you that's an act of service or kindness or worship that may be like, I don't know, is weird, is inappropriate in polite society, is something that, well, what will people think if I live my life this way? I mean, I, don't, I can't give any specific direction, but I would say, like, bring that before the Lord. That might be exactly the kind of worship that Jesus is asking of you. That might be exactly the kind of expression of devotion to Him as, as you ponder the depth of your sin, and the beauty of His goodness and grace. I think it's a good word. We're going to take communion. Paul's whole message in Colossians is built around this idea that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And the bread and the cup, they're a visible reminder of that truth. Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood crucified and raised from the dead. And this reality of his work on the cross is the source of our salvation, of our continuing holiness, of our supernatural power. The gift of Christ on our behalf, represented at this table, is where our life comes from. 
And so as the band comes up and we sing, I would just encourage you to come down and take the bread and the cup. There's um, juice and wine per the dictates of your conscience. To think about the body of Christ broken for you and, and the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Not to condemn you, but to forgive you, to bring you into the kingdom, to make you a member of the family, and to empower you to actually live a life that looks more and more like Jesus day by day. Spend a mo- few moments in quiet reflection and, and um, take communion um, in the quietness of your heart. Uh, as we sing, um, as always, the, the prayer rugs are available up front, and we, we don't have these up front because we want to be intentionally weird, but I mean, with the question about um, kissing the feet of Jesus, maybe do, we do want to be intentionally weird. A lot of times, since we're physical people, the posture of our body helps us with the posture of our souls. And so if you at any point want to come down and pray and kneel, you're more than welcome to do that. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.